This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. outside a bus stop late at night, deserted, apart from herself, and a wizened-up drunk in an army grey coat who staggered past the crooked bus stop sign. She said she was waiting on a cab. I said nothing about seeing her wag her thumb. She was broke, and relief at seeing a familiar face cleansed worry lines from her forehead. We knew each other. She'd often babysat for me and my wife. We got along fine, always a joke going on, but no messing of that sort that I intended to try later. She was skinny, 19, had hardly any tits to speak of, long flowing red hair, and a beautiful feckin' arse. Tight. Lovely word, that is. In the right context. I was, what, a couple of days from clocking up another birthday, the 28th. I wasn't getting any from the missus, so I had to make the most of whatever opportunities came my way. Get in, I said, glancing at my watch, to fool her into thinking I was tied to time. You're sure? Yeah. The arresting words of Irish writer Martin Malone from his latest short story collection, Deadly Confederacies and Other Stories. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. Why is Syria being so fiercely contested through time? And does history have anything to tell us about the tragedies that afflict the country today? On this week's show, Dr. Trevor Bryce from the University of Queensland discusses Syria the cultural melting pot of the Middle East and his latest epic read, Syria, a 3,000-year history. And is there fact in every fiction? Irish novelist Martin Malone talks human vulnerability, interconnectedness and war from his latest collection of short stories, Deadly Confederacies and Other Stories. This is a show about time and location, fear and terror, history and hope. But first, 3,000 years of ancient Syria from the Bronze Age to the Roman era and beyond. Trevor Bryce is an honorary professor and research consultant in the University of Queensland and an emeritus professor of the University of New England, where he was professor of classics and ancient history. He is fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities and has been awarded an Australian Centenary Medal for his services to history. His notable reads include The Trojans and Their Neighbours, Letters of the Great Kings of the Ancient Near East, The Parting Mists of Ancient Anatolia, and the world of the Neo-Hittite kingdoms, a political and military history. His latest book, Ancient Syria, a 3,000-year history, has just been published by Oxford University Press and is an essential backstory to one of the world's most trouble-prone, volatile, but also culturally and politically important regions. Trevor's book is not just a history of invasion and oppression, but an illuminating study into some of the greatest leaders of the ancient world, including the likes of Zenobia, the Arab Queen of the East, Cyrus the Great, Alexander the Great, not to mention Pompey. 
Trevor says the purpose of his book is to tell a story, more precisely, a series of stories and sometimes stories within the story. He believes the tales they tell are woven into a continuous historical narrative that extends over 3,000 years. Well, over the weekend, I gave Trevor a shout at his home in Queensland in Australia and asked him about the exact location of ancient Syria. Let's take a listen. Ancient Syria is generally regarded as a very broad area, primarily the area between the Euphrates River and the Mediterranean Sea. So it sort of has Egypt to the southwest, Mesopotamia to the to the east, I should say, Turkey to the northwest. So it's a, a region in the middle, in a sense, of the Middle Eastern world, or the Near Eastern world, as it was often called in ancient times. And it's very much the crossroads of the Middle East. And I suppose because of this, it has been under siege literally throughout its entire history. Yes. This is because it's, uh, well, its greatest strength is what makes it also its greatest vulnerability. Lots of routes pass through it trade routes, routes that could be used for military purposes, through it from Mesopotamia to the Mediterranean or Mesopotamia to Egypt or down to Arabia or again up to Turkey. It has some wonderful seaports too. So these are attractions for Syria, but also very much attractions for the outsiders who seek to impose their control or influence upon it. Now, Trevor, what I really liked about the book is that while you cover a mammoth 3,000 years of ancient Syrian history, we have some hugely enigmatic characters who make for a really compelling reading. They've got such terrific stories to them, their family histories, their complex psychological profiles, how they went about acquiring vast tracts of land and how they thought in terms of pure military precision to hold on to power. Can you talk me through some of these towering figures? Yes, well, there are some of the international figures, people from other lands, people like Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who was very keen to get control of Syria. And then uh, later on, Romans like Pompey, uh, Mark Antony, and so on. And Cleopatra was very interested in Syria because of the possibility of giving land to her children there. And amongst the Syrians themselves, there are some notable figures who had great ambitions, particularly Zenobia, the queen of Palmyra, who built an empire, a short-lived empire, which was to some extent one of Rome's most powerful rivals for a very short period of time. And Queen Zenobia is a fascinating character because she was left a widow and she managed to not only hold on to power but actually amass vast amounts of land and expand the empire. She's a very inspirational female figure in terms of military history. Can you tell me about her? Because I'm not sure would lots of people have heard much about her. That's right, yes. Yes, she's actually quite well known in parts of the Middle Eastern world today. I think a warship was named after Zainab or something like that. But she was probably an Arab whose father, according to Arab tradition, was very, very powerful. I suppose you'd call him a sheik, built up a powerful army. And she gained battle experience, according to both Greek history and Roman history and Arab history by accompanying her father on his campaigns and then apparently her husband on campaigns. So she rode with the troops, she fought with the troops, and it was this that gave her a sense of military experience, but also probably created her ambitions for building 
forming alliances, I think, with lots of local Arab tribes as well. And there's one figure that I find very interesting in your book, and it's the great Persian emperor, Cyrus the Great. Now, he was an expert communicator, and he really trumpeted public relations and advocacy for his own best-described dictatorship in ways. Can you talk to me about his reign? Because he built vast amounts of monuments. He very much was a big architectural hero for the time. And there is also great historical debate and legal debate as to the Cyrus Cylinder, which is seen as the first ancient bill of human rights, so to speak. Yes. I should say, first of all, that Cyrus gets a pretty good press in the Bible because he was the freer of the Jews from their captivity in Babylon. So he occupied Babylon, set free the Jews, said, right, you can go back home, you can rebuild your temple, rebuild Jerusalem, and you have freedom of worship. In a sense, this reflected a general policy of Cyrus and a number of his successes as well. That is to build an empire by military force, but to hold it together through diplomacy, uh, respect for local customs, and as far as possible, assigning responsibility to local peoples who would be answerable to him, but they would be locals. So he was very much all-inclusive in all this. And you mentioned the monuments. One of the things that he did was to bring craftsmen from all parts of his empire to work on the great architectural achievements of his major cities, the artistic achievements and well. So he's very cosmopolitan in this respect, very good diplomat, but also his culture derived to a large extent from its cosmopolitanism, involving as many people as possible from many of his lands as possible. Plus also, he had an excellent communication system, so his officials could move very quickly through the whole empire. But he was very much the master of spin because he was very pragmatic about letting everybody else in his kingdoms know just how good a leader he was and just how fair a leader he was and just how accessible and kind and gracious he was as a leader. Absolutely. And that probably applies to a number of rulers, the ancient as well as the modern world as well. It's how effectively you can project yourself as a a great leader in a political and diplomatic sense as well as in a military sense too. And we have to realise too that he was not much better than most of the other warlords of the ancient world. He could be brutal, ruthless and carry out massacres on a grand scale. But the image he tried to project was that of a great leader of peoples, not just a war leader, but a leader in a cultural and political and diplomatic and administrative sense as well. Now, Trevor, I've always been fascinated by the ancient wonders of the world. And the Hanging Gardens of Babylon are arguably one of the most controversial because there's no actual archaeological evidence to say that they actually exist anywhere. And they're now in what would be perceived today as present-day Iraq, but traditionally were in ancient Syria. Can you tell me about them and their great ruler, the great romantic himself? Yes. Nebuchadnezzar. He was the second of a royal dynasty which established a major Babylonian empire to begin with in southern Iraq and then it spread from the late 6th century through much of the 5th century. So he was a great military leader but he would have wanted to give the image of being a great builder as well. That was probably even more important. So he built this wonderful or developed this city of Babylon so that it became the largest city of the ancient world with great palaces and boulevard, monuments of all 
kinds. He built a museum which gathered all the important artifacts from different countries. But significantly, there is no mention of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar's list of his achievements. And there's no mention of it by a man called Herodotus, a Greek historian who either visited the place or heard from people who did. So the surprising thing is that Nebuchadnezzar did not mention these if, in fact, they did exist in Babylon. So there are all sorts of theories about whether they're just legend or whether, in fact, they were built in another city and have yet to be identified as such. Now, can we talk a little bit about biblical and Syrian history? Because they very much are interweaved and we've got the biblical names of Saul, David and Solomon. And there is a lot of dispute as to whether they actually existed or not and whether the narrative of history there is actually true. Can we talk about what we can know and what we can't prove? The main problem with these early figures of Israelite history or Jewish history is that almost everything we know about them is from the Bible. And a number of scholars would say, well, what you really need is contemporary independent evidence, both written and archaeological, before you can say, yes, these are genuine historical figures. So a lot of scholars would regard them essentially as figures of folk stories and legend. But I suppose the obvious answer which a number of people would give is that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. We might find evidence which is still to be unearthed. For example, David, quite recently, an excavation in Israel turned up in one of the cities, uh, a fragmentary inscription which talked about an Israelite leader as a member of the House of David. So this is some solid evidence for the existence of a ruler called David. We've still defined solid contemporary evidence for a ruler called Solomon and certainly Saul. So these may well be historical figures, but from the point of view strictly of contemporary evidence, we don't yet have this evidence. And I know that you mentioned that you use ancient sources for letters or types of letters that were carvings and so on, and obviously used from the Bronze Age medal. But you have very interesting stuff on Edward Gibbon, and you describe his history as very much an elaborate ancient literary confidence trick. Now, that made me laugh my head off, because certainly when I was in university 20 years ago, that was the gospel. Yes, yes. Well, I can say first of all that Edward Gibbon is one of the writers that I most admire, both as a writer and as a historian, but he uses ancient literary evidence in a rather naive way. That is, he doesn't subject it to close scrutiny, and he accepts at face value what the ancient writers tell us. There's a particular document to which I referred, a particular group of writings called the Augustan History, and we now know that that was a fabrication It was largely made up with invented characters, invented speeches. There is some historical truth in it, but it's very largely uh, a fictitious piece of work, a sort of a hoax, which is extremely clever and extremely elaborate. But it's so entertaining that even though scholars now will say, well, there's a lot you can't accept from it, they'll still quote it simply because of its entertainment value. Having said that, I think as far as the grand sweep of Roman history is concerned, I think Gibbon gets the spirit essence of that as well as any modern scholar does. Do you think 
In terms of all the research you've done for this book, do you think there are any lessons in history for Syria? Because the book obviously shows that it was a land fiercely contested. It has been invaded and plundered through years and years of conquest. And it also has had some hugely dramatic events taking place within its borders. When we look at Syria today and the tragedies that are consistently unfolding in the country and the human cost, can we look to history and is there any solution? I guess the good news about history, and this has been said by others, is that we can learn from the mistakes of the past. The sad news is that we never do. I think what we learn about modern Syria from ancient Syria is that as long as there are major powers from outside who will seek to control or influence it, Syria will never be a peaceful, stable place. And there were ancient powers who tried to exert their control over it, just as there are modern powers who try to do the same thing. And this, as much as anything else, tends to fracture and fragment the country. Of course, there are many other problems as well, but if we're to learn anything from the past, I think it's that Syria should be allowed to develop on its own. And I don't think it ever will, because it's so attractive to major powers outside its borders, major powers, both ancient and modern. And when we think of some of these ancient towns like Homs and Aleppo and Hama, and then we read today in the papers what's happening, it is very similar in some ways to 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Yes, it is. This was one of the things that attracted me to writing a history of Syria. You see names like, like those you've mentioned, Aleppo, Homs and Hama, and also, of course, Damascus, coming up time and time again. They appear right throughout history. It's a very bloody history that they have, but there are also periods when they achieve great things as well. I guess one of the most poignant things for me was uh, I was reading fairly recently about an area of Homs and how one day there were people going shopping in the markets and sipping coffee in outdoor uh, coffee shops and so on. And then the next day, that whole area was obliterated. Uh, total charred, ruined bodies lying round about. It's just the stark contrast. That makes me think of a scene from ancient Syria, where we hear of a man who was sent as an official from a city called Ugarit on the coast to live in a city on the Euphrates. Well, he exchanges correspondence with other people. It all seems so incredibly normal. And in one of his letters, he writes to a prince in Ugarit, and he said, oh, by the way, I'm sending you some plants for this letter. Uh, everything is fine here. Next letter you send to me, could you send along with it uh, a fine linen garment and some oil? And this was just as the civilization there was on the brink of total collapse. So again, it's this horrifying contrast between a world of normality and a world of destruction. That seems to me to be very much a theme of modern Syria today. It's hard almost to believe, isn't it? But when you think of the terrific cities in the world, the fascinating, the alive, the energetic, the vibrant, I think of Jerusalem and I think of Damascus. Lots of people will point to Paris, London and New York. But when you walk through these ancient cities and there's monuments and there's tracts of history and there's narratives of history, biblical narratives. It's so shocking to think of these civilizations being destroyed and so consistently. Yes, it's absolutely horrifying. It doesn't even bear thinking about what parts of their culture have been destroyed forever. And also when we consider the sharp reality and the very harsh realities of looting and think of all these fantastic ancient artefacts that are being destroyed. But one thing that's quite interesting is that a lot of what you talk about in your book and in terms of lots of the different stories, we have some 
amazing artefacts in the British Museum in London. And it makes you think in terms of how we are holding on to history and the famous documents of history. Are the archaeological evidence, are the artefacts? Yes, it does. There's a lot of controversy, of course, about uh, material which is held in museums like the British Museum and other places, which many would argue were looted from their original homelands and they should have been sent back, etc. But I suppose you have to say that because of this, in many cases, there is a negative side. The positive side is that many things have been preserved for us which would no longer exist had they remained in their original homeland or been sent back there. And in case you're wondering what the rocking music is, well, the music we're listening to is from the Tunisian-born Anwar Brahim from his collection Astrakhan Café. It's a sublime collection of music. I hope you're enjoying it.
Talks on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Now, if you want to get in contact with the show, well, why don't you drop me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. It's always lovely hearing from you, really lovely. So off you go. OK, let's move into the fusion of fact and fiction. Martin Malone writes stories of profound beauty, grace and power. Born in Kildare, he's the author of six novels, a short story collection and a memoir. And he is also written for television and stage. Martin is a former member of the Irish Army Military Police and has served five tours of duty with the United Nations Interim Force in the Lebanon and one with the United Nations Iran-Iraq Military Observer Group. Martin's latest book, Deadly Confederacies and Other Stories, is a haunting, original and hugely gripping collection of 24 short stories and is dedicated to the memory of his close friend, actor and director, Sean Judge. Martin says... What I write about has happened to people. It's happening to people and will happen to people, be it in a fiction or a non-fictional sense. Well, I had the pleasure of spending a lovely afternoon of coffee and chats with one of Ireland's master storytellers. I asked Martin about his work with the United Nations. I was a military police NCO. I wasn't on a checkpoint for most of my time there. I was working in investigations. So you're getting a, a, a cultural drip into your veins all the time. So you're taking that... Uh, I suppose life juice, maximising it. And of course, I have a great sense of history as well. I was stationed in Tyre and I would have went to Sidon. And so anywhere in Jerusalem, I would have read about those places and I was able to soak in that energy as well. Yeah, so it, opened, it opens your eyes too. But even in Ireland as well, I go to different places that I haven't been to before and I take in that energy and I study. And by study, I mean I just watch and I listen. So the sentence will come then and then I either have a story or I'll have something that will be used later on in a story. And the refreshing thing is about your writing and certainly your short stories is that you have stories that are from Ireland and also stories from the Middle East. And a lot of people wouldn't expect that from an Irish writer. They expect Israelis or Lebanese or Palestinians to write about their particular situation. Well, I think people are the same everywhere. And this is my take. I'm sure in a few years' time we will have Polish people writing about their Irish experiences here if they're not already writing about it. So what I wanted to do was just to say, well, there are stories that say, well, why not write it from? As an Irishman, I have no business writing it. But I can write it from a Palestinian viewpoint. I can write from a Lebanese Muslim's viewpoint. Why? Because I'm human, firstly, and so are they. And you look for that common territory between you. You know, and you, you shape your story then. But... I've written about places that don't exist anymore and I wanted to do that as well. And you put yourself into the character's shoes. How would I feel about this? Go on to these places if you want to visit them, why not write about them? And if they make an impact on you, express it. And when you're writer, that's what you do. And clearly Iraq had a very profound impact on you as a writer in terms of how you shaped your storytelling. Can you tell me about your experiences in Halabja? Yeah, Halabja is a town in northern Iraq and I was in Iraq in 88-89 as a part of a military observer group and I was stationed in a place called Sulaymaniyah for three months and Halabja is 80 kilometres away from that town. So we drove there and we drove through trenches that were like World War One trenches and we drove into this huge town. It was deserted and I'll never forget the wind that came, like a crying wind, and we passed these uh, cemeteries outside. We passed an ordinary cemetery on the right and on the left you had these mass graves and they were lime covered and I just never forget the wind that came and I, I tried to write about that story because I tried to write from an Irish man's perspective as well but I, I said to myself I had no business doing that I'm out of there 
two or three months. The people had to live there all the time. And I was kind of annoyed about it as well because this was an atrocity that the West largely ignored. I mean, 5,000 people were gassed to death. There was a cocktail of chemical agents, chemical weapons used to kill these people and there were civilians in the main. I remember being in Iraq then three or four months after that down in Baghdad and, and uh, there, was a, there was an arms sale. And he said, what, what's going on here? So Saddam would have bought his ingredients to manufacture his chemical weapons from the West, Germany, the US, and the, the UK, uh, France. And here they were being used on, on a civilian population because Saddam had decided to push back 25 kilometers back from the radio. And, and you, you see flattened villages everywhere. But this was the largest large scale chemical weapon attack uh, on the civilian population and it was absolutely horrendous what happened. So I got the idea of this young goat herd watching this destruction and I thought here's a chance to use a story and the worst thing that can happen to it is look at it's going to remind people about this atrocity. But interestingly enough I had a novel last year based on this called Valley of the Peacock Angel. And you write beautifully about the Kurds and their cultural practices and one of the things I found very interesting was reading about the Hasidic religion. Well there would be a, a minority the religion among the Kurds themselves and they were recently in the news as well because they were forced out of their homes because they were being tortured and being driven out of their homes by this ISIS and uh, they believe and why they're persecuted and why they're living in the foothills of northern Iraq is because they're seen to believe in the devil and worship uh, um, Lucifer the Lord of Light and they believe that uh, when God made the RT entrusted the care of seven angels and he told them they were to bow to no one it's not that they don't believe in God but they're seen as worshippers of uh, Lucifer the angel of light and that's uh, that's only a small aspect of it they have their own rituals and different customs as well which are can, can be a complex set of beliefs and a fundamental set of beliefs but certainly you, you know that this is why they're living where they are living because of this persecution this was a sense of alienation then as well you know so to them the peacock would be a sacred bird and the bustard would be a sacred bird so that's kind of the gist of their religion. Can we talk about some of your Irish stories in Deadly Confederacies? You have a very interesting story called A Day Like No Other. Yeah, I, I wanted to write a story about the effects of austerity measures on a young couple who both of them were working and they lost lose their jobs and the effect that had on them. This about this young couple who were, I suppose, exploited to a degree in that they were working in the bank, but they weren't on great money. Their, their combined wage made for a fair wage. So I want to write about, about the effects of these austerity measures on a, on a couple. Then she gets bad news then on her health and her health is on the slide. And know. it's very real because she has to borrow money for medical expenses. They're down to their last tin of beans, literally. And <laughs> and how that corrodes their relationship. You're left as a reader with a, a very distinct feeling of emptiness and loneliness and also huge compassion. Well, I think that story, people will be able to relate to that story mm. because that that's the Lenten of the country that's going on. You have a young couple deeply in love who get, I won't say get married, but they're living together and they're planning a future together and the carpet is literally taken mm-hmm. out from under their feet. Um, then she's a health issue and they've grown apart. They don't have anything. You know, she doesn't have money to go. She's, mm-hmm. They've applied for a medical card. They're waiting for youngs mm-hmm. to get it. They have to dance through every question on these forms that they give out, you know. Um, a circus clown wouldn't have to do as much, mm-hmm. you know, as what they're asked to do. So it's not just they're losing their work. It's the sense of hopelessness that they're left with and the anger that's there and the way that, you know, they're sitting down looking at television and they're seeing certain politicians on. They would have been in charge of the orchestra Mm. when all this happened and and they're walking away from this. One of the very fast-paced, disturbing 
fascinating and hugely compelling reads in this short story collection is the title story Deadly Confederacies. And what it shows us is that sometimes we underestimate how seemingly ordinary people can live very extraordinary lives or certainly do very extraordinary sinister things. And it's very, very grim and very, very frightening. Yeah, it is a frightening story and it's frightening from writing. It wasn't mm. too easy. Um, this is an old murder story. And I was in 13, 14 when that broke. I, I remember the guards going out to detectives going out mm. to questionnaires and it was a murder that was never solved and it was became known as the murder triangle because there was another woman killed not too far away from her this first woman was killed and then another woman killed at the far side of the town so it became known to the Gardaí as the murder triangle and this woman was um, her murder was kind of forgotten about there was a suspect and he was charged with it, but there was, was enough evidence, mm-hmm. it seems. And I spoke to the guards about it, and, and they couldn't uh, ascertain for sure whether he was him or not, you know. So if I got the idea, well, you know, maybe if there was two people involved in this, and bring the murder on 11 years, mm-hmm. 12 years. And there's some deliberate things missing from this. From first day, is that they're two guys, mm-hmm. this is why they're Confederates, and they're deadly Confederates. Mm-hmm. And I just showed a glimpse of their home life which wasn't great, but also the fact that common to the two of them, they have no remorse, absolutely no remorse. And this woman is murdered. You go 11 years advance. Have they changed? Not really. But one of the, the guy who committed the initial murder is left alone. He's he's there. They know each other, but we don't know very much about him. I wanted to focus on the other guy, mm. the guy who was present, and just to show what he was like. And what was it like for a woman to live with someone whom she suspected of doing mm. these things? Is she, is she completely blind to him does she really know her man and I would say in many instances they don't or in many instances they do they just choose to ignore it because they've mortgages to pay they've children to rear well that might come into to a degree yeah mm. and certainly I wouldn't rule that out that a woman would say you know what, what have I to lose mm. if he if he's caught or he comes out with this and that certainly would come into the, the equation but it could be a slow awakening and you'd almost I suppose maybe want to give someone the benefit of the doubt and this guy has two daughters of his own. Now I read it on a bus from Dublin to go away and I was actually going through the plains of Kildare and I was really sucked in and there's a ferocious pace and energy to it and it's very consuming but I thought to myself afterwards what is that like to write? Is that a very uncomfortable place to be in when you're writing about that? Well it is because well, it is because I'd be looking and thinking is there a novel in this and I don't really want to know these characters beyond the scope of where I've brought them to uh, what I wanted to do was write write a short story that was frightening and was mm-hmm. chilling and it does risk alienating the reader and you put them to one side because normally people like to have an empathy with a character, mm. an understanding of a character. There's no understanding here. Yeah. I would say it's it's a, it's a very good story and it's a, it's a chilling story, but it's also a reflection of society as well because there's a scene in it where the father of the missing girl is giving out flyers and people are taking mm. them. And one goes 20 paces ahead and what does she do with the flyer? Yeah. She bins it. Mm. So I wanted to write about that uh, as well. Then you're aware too of, is this going to impact on people who knew these people? I think they're immersed in that much hurt and pain anyway. What you write uh, about it isn't going to unduly affect them. And especially in the case of the first murder, it's, you're, you're bringing something back to, to life that people have forgotten about. And again, you know, we know that there's memorial markers here and there. So the current is a very interesting place. Mm. You know, it's a great place for walks in this, mm. but it's, it has a lot of st- a lot of stories to it down the years. 
and I find that whole aspect of it very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to write a story, and I, I, a lot of stories are, I, I'm sure, stories that I read, they don't contain a degree of bad language, but I only use that when it's mm-hmm. pertinent to the characters, and I try to do it mm-hmm. judiciously just to give enough of the feel of the character. This is a guy you could sit down and have a cup of coffee, like mm-hmm. you had a cup of coffee with me, and you wouldn't know the darker mm-hmm. aspects of his soul and what's mm-hmm. in his mind to do. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to frighten mm-hmm. the socks off people. I wanted to make them aware of that. And it's very chilling and it's very haunting, but terrific to read at the same time. Can I ask you, do you think your military training has really impacted on your control as a writer? I was always disciplined anyway to write. With. I remember David Marcus years ago advised me, Martin, you need to slow down a bit and you need to think mm-hmm. a bit more. And I took that advice on as well. I've got, I've got nuggets of advice from very good writers down the years and I've taken that on board. So I'm kind of letting things marinate now. So my army training would you're exposed to a lot when you're abroad and even at home and a lot of soldiers would 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 have their own stories to tell about Lebanon and Iraq and about different things post-traumatic stress syndrome I wrote a novel about that about a guy coming home uh, from Lebanon and I remember saying to um, some of the women that I knew they didn't want to know about what happened to this guy in Lebanon they wanted to know the domestic scene that was being played on the home front um, so that's that was another interesting thing as well so I would of course I think any life experience is going to help you as, mm. as a writer you want that degree of authenticity to come across in your stories trying to fool the reader but this is real and you do have them thinking about the writer as well where's his mind at you know so that, you know, that's the game we're in yeah so you're tra- you're challenging yourself as a writer as, as well like th- th- that short story collection Delhi Confederacies and and picked up short stories and they're, they're, they've all got a team set through them yeah. and, and I said I want to do something different I want it to be like yeah, the box of chocolates you, know, you don't know what you're mm. going to get in it and that's that was my take on it that's what I wanted yeah. to do and uh, um, it was fun selecting the ones that went in and I think this Deadly Confederacy is, is a chilling as you say story but that's the beauty of a short story because as I said I read some on the bath I read some on the bus I read some on my couch that you can dip in and out you still get the gratification and the reward of having accomplished something you wrote a very interesting book a couple of years ago. It's called The Silence of the Glass House. It was about the ghastly execution of seven anti-treaty volunteers. Can you talk me through the story? Well, this execution, mass execution of seven prisoners happened after the amnesty was offered by the provisional government in which the anti-treaty forces were required to give up their weapons and ammunition and all this. And if they were found afterwards, they would be subjected to you know severe punishment. Six or seven of the killed their uh, irregulars or anti-treaties mm-hmm. volunteers were found in a trench quite near the Curra race course in a barn and they were um, executed a week later some of them very very young 18, 19 years of age. Now, they were no angels. They were very effective at what they were doing. Um, you also had a murder earlier on in Kildare Town, uh, I think in February or March of that year, where a young British officer with Irish uh, connections, Wogan Brown, was uh, shot dead after a bank raid. He was crying, bringing money down to the barracks. And that threatened the whole. Churchill sent a telegram to to Michael Collins to say that he was going to cancel the troop withdrawal and Collins sent him a telegram back more or less saying that they'll get them. Now Collins was dead before these executions took place. What's interesting about this, this happened in the Glass House and the Glass House is still in existence, it's in the Curra. You know, these guys were uh, there uh, in a week. One was, we believe, or is contested or argued that was shot at Moore's Bridge when he resisted arrest. Others say that he was he, he, he died with them and others then say that he died trying to escape. So, you know, there's a lot of theories about what actually happened. All we know is that they were there for a week and then they were taken out one by one and executed a week before Christmas. The local papers didn't give any or gave scant information about the atrocities. The Irish Independent gave an account and listed their names and addresses and all this and why they were executed. And at the very bottom of it, it says there was four Kerry volunteers sentenced to death 
for the same offence, but they had their sentence rescinded on the proviso that they, they, they gave a note not to attack free state troops or attack government property. Straight away, the mystery is there. Well, why was there a difference made between these guys? And some of these guys are very, very young. And, you know, in any war situation like that, you'd, you'd kill the leaders and, and execute one or two. So why did that happen? I grew up in the town. No one ever spoke about this. There's a cenotaph in the square and, and the names are are on that cenotaph. And also, I remember passing that cenotaph, looking at the names, and I was younger than them, now much older than them. During the investigation, or, or during the, the research, I call it an investigation, because <laughs> that's what it was like. You were trying to get through a forensic um, detail, trying to put the past back together, what actually happened. You get different stories. And one woman did approach me in Newbridge three or four years ago, said, the traitor died three or four years ago in Newbridge who wouldn't give me the name she don't know what to believe yeah. but clearly there Martin there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of uncertainty within that whole chapter in history and a lot of very dirty things are done on both sides yeah I agree that a, lo- a lot of dirty things this is the largest mass scale mm. execution yeah. of uh, anti-treaty prisoners and these would have been colleagues up to a point and to see uh, that happening you, you would have to ask yourself that there's something else mm-hmm. going on there none of these uh, were involved in the murder of mm-hmm. that British soldier that British officer so was it payback for that or was it because they were witness to a murder or was it to keep a traitor safe okay that they decided to make an example they weren't angels you know mm-hmm. but they would have had no quartermaster to go to. It, it's just, it was a tragic time and a tra- and people, you know, say the history is, is, is kind of, you know, let it go, let it lie. But we did let it lie for 40, mm. 40 years, you know. And I grew up in a town, no one ever spoke about this. And it's only in the recent past that people have started to talk about it. But a lot of the people who knew a lot of the stuff have passed on, have passed away. We're, we're left to try and put the jigsaw back together. Do you think as a writer, you're freer almost to look back at the past and maybe ask some very uncomfortable questions that historians sometimes skirt? Well, I think what I wanted is to go beyond the stats. Mm. We can be told how many were killed, how many died, how many what this, what, what's that. That's okay in the black and white mm. things. If you're interested in the black mm. and white things or if you're interested in just looking at a name and see when they die. But as a writer, as, as a fiction writer, I want to bring the characters to life. And I wanted to try and, well, what was it like back then? You, you do your research and you, you, you hope you get your characters, real life characters mm. that people can believe in them. You run with it. You know, it's, it's just interesting. You don't have the truth of everything. I don't believe, you, you know, history doesn't give us all the answers. Mm. But I think that it's very important for us. Because what Silence the Glass House does and, uh, is bring the history to a newer audience, a newer generation that might know nothing about it. And right, you know, the true blood historian will probably be fraught at the mouth when he reads some of you know, the degree of license that I would have taken with it. But that's to bring the story alive. Like Michael Collins was made into a movie and it wasn't historically correct, you know. And again, you look at Love, Hate on and, and television as well and what much of that is plucked off the streets. But it's gone beyond the stats now. You see them on TV and it's, they're living characters and you can see what's going on, you know. And people are drawn to that sort. Maybe you're hot-wired to deal with, <laughs> look at things like that, you know. And that was a Kildare-born novelist and short story writer, Martin Malone. Deadly Confederacies and Other Stories is published by New Island Books and is one stunning read. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Next week, I'm going to speed through some of the best books of dark and crazy and filthy dirty Philip Roth. I cannot wait for that. Okay, before I go, I'd just like to say a big thank you to Owen Holligan and Kate McDonnell who helped out with this week's show and to the great Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. Go easy, go light and be well. To the Sailor's Bonnet from The Gloaming. Enjoy.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.